Well, uh, let's pray. Father, we do praise you for such a wonderful church, people who serve and give and give and give. And uh, Lord, it all comes from you. Um, People are not naturally that giving apart from your grace. So, uh, Father, we pray for your grace as we open your word now and uh, pray that you be glorified in our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, there's an interesting scene. By the way, the book of Revelation, John um, has a vision of the throne room of heaven. And in verse 5, he turns and he looks and he sees Jesus as a lion. And uh, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah throughout the Bible. He's powerful. He's majestic. Very next verse, he turns again and he looks on the throne and there is Jesus pictured as a lamb, looking like a lamb who has been slain. Now, which is it? Is Jesus a powerful, ferocious lion or is he a gentle, tender lamb? And the answer is yes, he is both. Now, that same concept that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. We see in today's scripture, we have been working through Matthew's gospel. We're in Matthew chapter 12, and um, we've actually seen his power and authority as he's, he's cast out demons and he's calmed the storm and he's healed people who are sick. He's done amazing miracles. In fact, the very last thing he did uh, that we looked at before Mother's Day was he healed a man with a, a shriveled hand and it was done on the Sabbath, which created some, some controversy. But uh, now, look what happens. The Pharisees, in verse 14, Matthew 12:14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, if you were to stop right there and you just saw Jesus as the lion, you might think it would say, so Jesus stood up to them called fire down from heaven and destroyed them all. But now, what does it say? Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Okay, not because he's a coward. He, he could take them on, no problem. But what's, what's going on here? And many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Not only am I not going to argue and destroy those, those Pharisees. I want everybody else to be quiet. Right? Don't make, make it known that I'm here. Why does he do this? Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So now Matthew takes us back to the prophet Isaiah. This was written uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ, talking about a servant of the Lord who was going to come. This is a prophecy of Jesus. And Matthew was saying his, his actions of being powerful one moment and then being quiet and gentle the next moment, that was all written about in the prophet Isaiah. And it's actually God speaking. Behold my servant, that's referring to Jesus, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, uh, that's another picture of the power 
He is going to proclaim justice. He's going to straighten out what's wrong in this world. He's going to proclaim it to the Gentiles, some of your translations say, to the nations. So he's not just going to straighten out things in Israel. He's going to straighten out things all over the world. So here we see his power again. But then it says, right after that, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is a gentle quiet man. Now look at this. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's talking about people. A a reed was a a piece of grass and a bruised reed uh, is, is ready to be broken off. And a smoldering wick, when the candle is almost out of wax and the, the, the flame is sputtering, it's ready to go out, he will come to the weak. He will come to the bruised and to the smoldering. And rather than dismissing them like the world would do, he nurtures them like a shepherd. But then we see his power again. He will, he will do this until he brings justice to victory. He will return and bring victory and justice and he will straighten out what's wrong in this world. And in his name, the Gentiles or the nations will hope. So here we see this back and forth picture between the lion and the lamb. Between the one who will bring justice to victory and the gentle shepherd who takes care of the hurting. Here's what I want to do. I want to just give you two points this morning. I want to look at the justice of Jesus and then the gentleness of Jesus, and we'll see how they fit together. Okay? Now, what does it mean that he will bring justice to victory? Well, we live in an unjust world. We live in a fallen, sinful world. There's worldwide injustice. There's unjust wars and unjust laws, and there's still slavery in parts of Africa. Uh, There is a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of injustice on a smaller level. There's child abuse. There's unfaithfulness in marriage. There's lying. There's stealing. We live in a fallen, unjust world. Now, when Jesus returns, he will bring justice to victory. What does that mean? All injustice will be judged and punished. And then he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth where justice and righteousness cover the earth. By the way, this doesn't get mentioned very often, but when you die now, your soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven. But there's a day when he will return to this earth and uh, your soul will be reunited with a resurrected body and the the. The heavens and the earth will be made new, but in eternity, do you know where you're going to be in eternity? Not floating around on a cloud, on earth, on a new earth, with a a king called Jesus here on earth. We'll be glorified, but we will have physical bodies, right? So I hope you enjoy the earth, because you'll be here for a long, long time. Okay. Now, some people say it's a new earth in the sense that it's a brand new earth, maybe a new planet. Others say, no, it's, it's a renewed earth. I don't know what, what he's going to do. God can do whatever he wants. But uh, then the earth will be 
filled with the knowledge of the Lord and it will be perfectly just on this planet. Now, before you get too excited about that, you need to realize that justice is a good thing and justice is a terrifying thing. Because God is not just pretty just, he is perfectly just. And what that means is, apart from his grace, all sinners will be destroyed. So before you go, yes, it's an unjust world, we're working for justice, coexist on your bumper sticker, right? Let's work for world justice and world peace. Wait a minute. If you're like me, you're part of the problem. You're a sinner. In fact, in case you, uh, you doubt that, the Scripture says this in Romans 3, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. In case there's one in the room who says, But I'm pretty good. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, In other words, when you hear about the justice of God, if you haven't yet heard about the grace of God, when you hear about the justice of God, you should tremble because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And He is a just God. And we will be judged. And we should fear that judgment if we are not squarely standing on the grace of God. Of God. Okay? Now, um, here's the problem. Remember, I've shared this statistic with you before. Um, people were, were surveyed about hell and asked, do they believe in hell? Now, a majority of people believe that there is a hell. Okay? How many people believe they're going there? One half of 1%. So 99.5% of people walking around, your friends, your neighbors, they're not in church today. Why? They have no fear of God. They don't think they're going to hell. Right? There's very, very little fear of God, and they don't think they're that bad. But if God is a just God, we need to realize that we don't need to just be pretty good. We need to be perfect. Now, here's another reason people don't fear the justice of God. Because God has not punished us immediately for our sin, we think we're pretty good. Delayed judgment, rather than us saying thank you for being gracious, we take delayed judgment as an indication that we're not that bad and we won't be punished. Now, what I want to do, um, I want to show you some scriptures that kind of straighten this whole thing out. Um, If you've ever read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, there's a chapter in there called Holy Justice, which is worth the price of the book. But uh, I'm going to go over what he goes over in that book. Uh, But let me take you to the Old Testament. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant, you know, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, that Ark, it had been stolen by the Philistines. Now the Israelites have it back. It's been in some guy's house for a while. But David is now king, and he's going to bring it into Jerusalem. Now God was very clear how you're supposed to handle the ark. There were some loops 
uh, on the corners and some poles were to be put through the loops and then four men were to carry the ark by the poles. Right? And the reason he had that is nobody was allowed to touch the ark. It was a holy ark. Right? So here we have a parade. They're going to bring the, the ark back into Jerusalem. And they carry the ark of God. Oh, on a new cart. So they, the carrying thing is too heavy. And they came up with this cart idea. Right? On a new cart and brought it out of the house of Aminadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio the sons of Aminadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ohio Ohio went before the Ark, so that means Uzzah is in the back. Right? On the, on, there's the ox driving the cart, there's the one man in front, there's the Ark, and then there's uh, Uzzah on the back. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs, and lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. They had the whole praise band out there. And the, the, the path is lined up with thousands of, of Israelites cheering as the, the ark comes. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and, uh, and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. He doesn't want the ark to fall off, right? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there, because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Ooh, that'll ruin a worship service right there. You hit a wrong note, and God strikes you dead right in the worship service. And um, <laughs> David, David didn't like this. Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. David's kind of like us. We go, come on. He was only trying to help. What's the big deal? Wow, God's temperamental here. And uh, we can kind of get angry at God. Now, Sproul writes this. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole book. It looks like it. But um, First of all, remember, God gave specific instructions of how the ark was to be handled with the poles. They were not to put it on, an arc, on, a, on a cart. They were not to touch it. But he touched it anyways. He stretched out his hand and placed it squarely on the ark, steadying it in place lest it fall to the ground. An act of holy heroism? No, it was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield and season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes. When water is added to dust, it becomes mud, just as God designed it. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. Uzzah, on the other hand, was not an innocent man. He was not punished without warning. He was not punished without violating a law. There was no caprice in this act of divine judgment. There was nothing arbitrary or whimsical about what God did in that moment. But there was something unusual about it. The execution's suddenness and finality take us by surprise. They take us by surprise and at once 
they shock and offend us. We think that this is out of line. Actually, if God struck every one of us down the moment we sinned, that would be perfectly just. Right? It would be perfectly just for God to give us what he promised back in Genesis 2.17. For in the day that you eat of it, the day that you sin, the day you eat of the, the fruit, you shall surely die. See, here's our problem. We take God's grace in not slaying us the moment we sin. We take that for granted, and we think we must be pretty righteous. God must be pretty happy with us. So when we read about something like this, we actually get upset. You go, well, that was Old Testament. Acts chapter 5. We read about the worship service, and uh, the, the Christians were, were, they were actually having a, a special offering. Right? And uh, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold some land. And before they sold the land, they promised the church, we're going to give you whatever we get for the land. So they sold the land, and while the money was in hand, they, they go, wow, that's a lot of money. Why don't, uh, why don't we keep some of it ourselves so we, we benefit and we'll look good and give the rest to the church. So that's what they do. And Peter, in the middle of the, the church service, uh, feels led to ask Ananias, hey, what amount did you get for the land? Don't worry, we don't ask that around here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> We're send Peter around with a... No. Um, what, what price did you get? And he lied, and God strikes him down right during the offering. That's why we're having a second offering today, right? <laughs> Just in case. So then his wife, Sapphira, she was out, I don't know, maybe she was in the kitchen. You know, all the ladies are always cooking in the kitchen, right? So she comes out, and Peter says, hey, by the way, how much did you guys get for the land? Boom! He strikes her dead. And it says the, the Christians were filled with fear. Yet, they continued to grow in number. Now, you read about Uzzah, you read about Ananias and Sapphira, and your reaction is, that's unfair. And I think what we should say is, every time I sin and don't get struck down, that's pure grace, right? See, we can, we can confuse fairness and grace because the minute God shows us grace, we think it's unfair when he, exercise, when he exercises justice. Sproul tells this great story of when he was a, uh, a college professor at a Christian college. He taught an Old Testament class, and he said there were 250 students in the class. It was a fall class, and he said, all right, now, class, I want to make something clear. There are three term papers due. One is due on the last day of September. One is due on the last day of October. One is due on the last day of November. If it is late, you get an F. Do you all understand? They all said, yes, professor, we understand. First paper is due. It's the end of September. 
Out of 250 students, 225 of them turn in their paper on time, and 25 come quaking up to his desk saying, oh, professor, oh, will you please grant us an extension? Oh, we, we mismanaged our time. And, uh, and he said, all right, I'll grant you an extension this time. And they were singing his praises. So now the second paper is due, end of October. What do you think happened? Oh, word gets out. He's, he's a gracious softy. 200 students turn in their paper. 50 say, hey, could you grant us an extension, please? Okay. November comes. And he, he does grant the extension. 150 students turn in the paper. And 100 say, yeah, we'll get it to you when we're ready. Well, he becomes very upset. And he says this. I picked up my lethal black grade book and began taking down names. Johnson, do you have your paper? No, sir, came the reply. F, I said as I wrote in the grade book. Muldaney, do you have your paper? Again, no, sir, was the reply. I marked another F in the book. The students reacted with unmitigated fury. They howled in protest, screaming, That's not fair! I looked at one of the howling students. Lavery, you think that's not fair? Yes, he growled in response. Oh, I see. So it's justice you want. Fairness, justice. I seem to recall that you were late with your paper last time. If you insist on justice, you will certainly get it. I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll change your last grade to an F, which you so richly and justly deserve. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. He apologized for being so hasty and was suddenly happy, happy to settle for one F instead of two. Be careful when you complain to God that it's not fair. What's fair is that we are all smoldering in ashes right now because the penalty for sin is death. Right? I'm going to skip a whole bunch. The wages of sin is death. Right? Now, you're terrified, and we ought to be terrified at the justice of God. If that's the only attribute of God that there, there was, is his justice, we should be terrified. But now, let's talk about the gentleness of God. He, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. There's a gentle side to him. He's not going to snuff out the smoldering wick. What's he talking about? The smoldering wick and the bruised reed. Those are the spiritually weak people, I mean weak in the sense that they admit they're sinners. The hurting people, the people that most of the rest of the world would give up on, Jesus, rather than smashing the bruised reed or blowing out the smoldering wick, He's gentle, He nurtures the bruised reed. He fans into the flame. 
He goes after them and forgives them and restores them. Justice to the proud. Grace to the humble. We see a, a, a perfect contrast between the proud, spiritually proud, arrogant person and the humble sinner in Luke chapter 7. There's a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus over for dinner. Now, it was customary to do three things when you had people over for dinner. Don't try this today because it's 2,000 years later. But the uh, first thing you would do is you would greet them with a kiss. Okay? Um, Simon didn't kiss Jesus. Second thing they would do is they'd have you come in and a servant would wash your feet because uh, they had sandals back then and they walked on the dusty roads and their feet were always dirty, so somebody would wash your feet. And then, in many cases, they would pour perfume on your head. You know what that was? It was a deodorant. All right? So, Jesus comes over for dinner. Hey, Jesus, come on in, Simon says. No kiss, no feet, no oil for the head. Jesus sits down. In other words, Simon has a pretty high view of himself, and he's putting Jesus on trial. He's checking him out. Right? So they're talking theology. They're talking Old Testament scriptures. And in walks a woman. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... Okay, I think we can put two and two together. Probably a prostitute. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So she has some perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So she's crying on his feet and wiping the mud off with her hair and kissing his feet and pours the perfume on his feet. Now, this is just socially inappropriate. This is embarrassing. And look at what the Pharisee says. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Implication, she's a sinner, I'm not. She is a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, who the rest of society would brush aside. Yet Jesus now goes to bat for her and defends her over Simon. So he says, Simon, I got a, got a little question for you. A little, I'll tell you a story. Right? Real simple story. There's a guy who was forgiven a million bucks, and then a guy was forgiven ten bucks. Which guy will love the person who forgave them more? Simon says, well, that's, that's rather easy. The one who was forgiven the greater debt will love more. Jesus says, you got that right. You don't love me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me, right? But this woman, who you think is socially embarrassing, she's washed my feet with her tears. She's wiping the mud with her hair. 
She's anointing my feet with, with oil. Because she knows she's a sinner. And she knows she can find forgiveness in me. You, on the other hand, you're clueless. You don't think you need a Savior. In essence, what he's doing is he's saying, I'll take one broken person like this over a hundred self-righteous Pharisees like you. The gentle shepherd calling the sinner, nurturing the sinner, defending her, forgiving her. Now you go, okay, you've got him striking down Uzzah, you got him striking down Ananias and Sapphira, but he's gentle with this prostitute. Where do I stand? Do I get the wrath or do I get the gentle shepherd? Do you see yourself as a bruised reed, as a smoldering wick? In other words, are you spiritually broken? Do you see yourself as a sinner deserving the wrath of God? If not, get ready for justice because that's what you'll get. If on the other hand you say, no, I I am a sinner. I am that broken reed or that bruised reed. I need a Savior and you trust Him. Then guess what? He will give you grace. He will forgive you. He will take you to Uh, take you with him to eternity. Now, those of you who have been following along, though, you have an important question. How can he justly forgive this woman? Because if he's truly just, he must punish all sin. And that's where the gospel, the cross, comes in. In Romans 3... 26, Paul is talking about the cross. God had Jesus, his son, die on the cross to pay for our sin. It, the crucifixion, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? He's just. He must punish all sin. But on the cross, he took the punishment himself. And all who believe in him then, all who trust in him, our sins are transferred to the cross And His perfect righteousness is transferred to us. So God can look at us and justify us. He can declare us just. Not because we are, but because Jesus died in our place and lived in our place. That's how this perfectly just, gentle, gracious God deals with our sin. Just and gentle. And if you are standing on the cross, if Christ is your Savior, He looks at you with nothing but love. If you are outside of the cross on your own, thinking, I'm pretty good, be prepared for nothing but justice on Judgment Day. 
The good news is He calls anybody, any broken reed, any smoldering wick, come to Me. Trust in Me. And I will forgive you. And I will be your shepherd. So let me just close with this question. Have you received Him? But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What does that mean? You admit, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus, save me. And you trust in Him. Right? Notice the question, the question is, have you received Him? Not, do you go to church? Are you a pretty good person? Were you raised in a, in a church? Do you give money? Do you, no, that, the question is, do you see yourself as a broken, bruised reed crying out for a Savior? And you receive Him. He's alive. He's, he's here. And you invite Him into your life. Right? Maybe you've never done that. I want to give you another opportunity to do that right now. Let's pray. Jesus, You are the Lion.